Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. missed me. I have missed you. It is great to be with you in this season of Advent as we prepare for Christmas. The Christmas music has started where I live. I am sure it has started where you live as well. So what kind of Christmas music are you listening to? What are your favorites? I am an old, oh, holy night person. And I like all the ones that feature the angels. So angels we have heard on high. I like the ones where the angels show up to sing. I like when uh, the hallelujah chorus from the book of Revelation um, is is a part of what's going on. Because, you know, the angels, some of my favorite characters, by the way, the angels have known God as long as God has been knowable. And the things that they know about God are really extraordinary. And they're like jaw-droppingly stunned that God would go to such lengths to save these people. But, you know, God loves these people whom he has made. And the angels are like, he loves them so much. He loves them this much. How could he love them this much? Right? So when you pay attention to who the angels are and how they respond and what they show up to do in the Christmas story during the season of Advent, like consider that they're still around. They're still around. They're still in his presence. They're still carrying out his will. They're still showing up from time to time. Yeah, my um, guardian angels are very busy. I hope you know you have some too. Um, Keep yours busy as well. All right, so happy Advent, happy Hanukkah, unhappy Omicron. That's right. Unhappy, happy Advent, happy Christmas, happy Hanukkah, unhappy Omicron. Omicron is the latest variant of the coronavirus. We know very little about Omicron, so we're not going to focus on something we know very little about. We're just going to say it is out there and we are going to pay attention. Not to be confused with uh, the character in the Transformers series, the Autobot known as Omicron. No, no, no. He's a Decepticon. He's a Decepticon. He's a bad guy. Yeah. Autobots, good guys. Decepticons, bad guys. This is actually why I have a producer, because (laughs) I don't know what I'm talking about sometimes. Okay, this is why I have a producer who's a geek, because sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, Paul, who is Omicron in the Transformer series? Well, depending on which iteration, but in the cartoon series, he was this humongous mega robot that could destroy planets. He wasn't a very nice Mm -hmm. guy. It's a terrible character. All right, so um, we we are praying against the... Uh, variant now known as Omicron, uh, that it would not be quite as nasty as the Decepticon in the Transformer series, also known as Omicron. All of that um, up later. Right now, we're going to talk to Joe Jensen, Vice President of Church Engagement for Barna Research. Um, Yeah, so this is a conversation about the rising percentage or number of pastors who are actually seriously considering leaving ministry. This is important for us to know, and we're going to talk about how we can support our pastors. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Welcome back. Uh, fun to have joining us today, Joe Jensen. He is the vice president of church engagement for Barna Research. You can find what we're talking about today at Barna.com. Joe, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, thanks, Carmen. It's a privilege to be with you. Well, we just, um, we love David Kenneman. We love the opportunities that we've had over the past to to talk with him. We love what you guys are doing at Barna. We think asking questions of the church and on behalf of the church is really important. So we want you to feel comfortable chatting with us today about the research that you have been doing. Tell us what you have been finding as you have been talking with pastors across the country. Well, you know, Barna for over 35 years has been tracking kind of the health and well-being of churches. And along with that, if you're going to track the health and growth of a church, you have to pay attention to the leaders of the church, right? So that's what we've been doing for over three decades. Now, when the pandemic hits, you know, obviously everything shut down, um, as you all know. And, and as we considered the impact of the church, we really wanted to pay attention to how these huge seismic shifts in the church ministry landscape uh, due to the pandemic, how that was affecting pastors. So 18 months ago, we started to really track the health of pastors, the well-being of pastors. And last year, uh, the beginning of the, I'm sorry, the beginning of this year in January, we asked the question, have you given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year? And at that time, 29% answered yes to that question. And so that kind of alarmed us, right? That got our attention. So we continued to track, okay, how are pastors doing throughout the year um, in a lot of the different dimensions of, of overall well-being. And so we were tracking their mental health and emotional health. And, and then as we got to this fall, uh, we wanted to ask that question again. Have you given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year? And with the great resignation, with all these other trends going on in culture, we were interested to see what pastors would say. And uh, to our surprise and astonishment and to a little bit of our dismay, like we were a little disheartened to see that um, that number went up 9% to 38%, uh, that almost two out of about two out of five pastors in the U.S. have given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry. So I'm wondering, Joe, I think about not just my senior pastor at the church where I worship, but, you know, there are other pastors on staff as well. Can you just imagine just like walking up to your pastor and saying, hey, I, I saw this research. I'm kind of wondering, you know, let me, can I just check in with you? Like, how are you doing? Like, that seems like a reasonable thing for a member to do out of real care and concern for their pastor. I mean, can you imagine that being well-received? You know, actually, yes, I do think it would be. I, I think for congregants, you know, to approach your pastor with anything, can be, seem maybe a little bit intimidating because I think we, we, you know, in the past, and this has maybe contributed to some of like where we're at with pastors today is we've put pastors on pedestals, right? And we, we look at them as like super spiritual beings. And we, we've forgotten the fact that they're real human beings with some of the same emotional and mental struggles that, that we all share, right? I was in ministry full-time for 20 years. And I will tell you, Carmen, if somebody did what, what you just proposed, it would just speak volumes to me that, okay, somebody in my congregation cares for my well-being. And I think that's a great first step um, when, when we get asked, look, what can congregants do? What can like everyday people in church, you know, everyday people within our churches do to encourage pastors? And I think the first, first thing is to do what you just proposed. Just ask them, how are you doing and how can I help? Hmm. How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? Um, what's one thing mm -hmm. you're concerned about that I might be able to 
assist you with or address. I remember this was something that Lee Strobel shared about when he was in full-time ministry. So I'm thinking this dates, this goes back a number of years. But, you know, he also had a travel schedule. He had things that he was really committed to, but he had all these, you know, non-Christians coming to church as seekers and inquirers, very inquisitive. Um, And he would recognize there's no way I can say yes to all the people who want to meet with me. So he would just start having the guys who had said along the way, hey, you know, I'd like to meet with people. Like, I'm happy to hear people's questions and talk about Jesus. He'd just have them hanging around right there near where he was. So when somebody came up after worship and said, oh, I have all these questions and da, 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 he could say, you know what, I'm actually traveling this week or whatever, but Bob over here would love to talk with you about that and just be able to pass that person off to Bob. I, I just feel like offering ourselves in that way to our pastors, that there are some things they could pass off to us might also be one way to actually tangibly encourage them and, you know, and support their well-being. Yeah, that's, that's a great point and, and a great story about, you know, Lee Strobel. And, and I would say, Carmen, um, when we proactively go to our pastors um, and we say, hey, how can I help? How can I serve? Not just you personally, but how can I serve here at the church? Mm. I mean, what that does, um, that validates a pastor's calling in some really special ways, because first of all, you know, I've preached, you know, and, and I know maybe there's a few people in our audience who have preached. I know many in your audience um, have, have been in the, on well, the receiving like end of a sermon. We feel like we're raising kids. We feel like if we're raising kids, we're preaching all the time. So go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. And isn't it, <laughs> and isn't mama, it validating? Every mama listening. Yeah. Every mama listening yeah. is like, oh yeah, dude, I preach. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, isn't it validating when you know, when some, you don't have to prompt it when, some, you know, you're like you said, your kids mm. or somebody in your congregation goes up to you and through a statement that they make really validates what you've been preaching on, which is to get in the game, to get involved, to make a difference. And so I love that example that you gave. It's, it's, it's such a tangible way to say, hey, um, what you're doing is actually making an impact on me because I'm willing to step in and to step up and to serve the church and in a way serve you as my pastor. All right, we are talking with Joe Jensen. He is the Vice President of Church Engagement for Barna Research. We're talking about some recent research, which you can engage with online at barna.com. It's about pastors and their well-being. The numbers um, say, you know, there's a significant number and actually a rising percentage of pastors seriously considering leaving full-time vocational ministry. What would that mean for your church? Maybe you're in a congregation where the pastor has left vocational ministry to serve God in some other um, in some other way. What does that leave the church looking like, and who's uh, stepping into those voids? We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Continuing our conversation now with Joe Jensen. He's the vice president of church engagement for Barna Research. We're talking about Recent research that Barna has been doing, uh, talking with pastors across the country, um, and they're uh, really a significant percentage of them seriously considering thinking about leaving ministry. I think it raises the vital need um, of a question of support and care for the well-being of our pastors. There's obviously a, a time of high emotional turmoil and deep division in our country, and that is in evidence in our churches as well. Joe, tell us you know, when you're talking with pastors, is it things that are like 
actually theological? People are, you know, divided in the church over theological things? Or does it feel like the spirit of the world is what has intruded into the church and is really causing division among us and therefore this angst for our pastors? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think it could be, it's a number of different things, right? I definitely think, you know, theology and doctrine. I mean, we, you know, we research a lot of churches that are working through a lot of those types of issues within their congregations. Um, But I do think there's a lot of cultural forces at play that are pressing in on churches and on pastors specifically. And we, I mean, the, the amount of change that has happened in the last two years, the last two months is staggering. And if you think about just the, the impact of social media and digital technology, um, the divisions we see in, in our culture when it comes to race and politics and, and, uh, and how that's so present because it's, so, because it's on our screens. So mm-hmm. we see it, we scroll through it. Pastors are not immune to all those forces at play. Um, you have, you know, pressures at home. You have the fact that, you know, just like, you know, the pandemic pressures that impacted, you know, everyone else around the planet also impacted pastors, right? There was, you know, uh, education uh, requirements that had to happen. There's the the change in hybrid and remote work environments. And, and so, you know, it's, there's so many of these forces at play. And I really think it's, it's just really left pastors, I would say a little bit like emotionally and spiritually dizzy where they're trying to get their bearings and they're trying to get their footing. And really at a core, what it's done is we've talked to a lot of pastors who in the midst of all of that change and and the impact it's had on their church and ministry, they've asked this question like, is this really what I'm called to? Was this really what I signed up for when I first answered that call into full-time ministry? And a lot of them are really grappling with that question. And it comes out in this, in this statistic. So Joe, you served, um, for a number of years in the context of pastoral ministry. I'm guessing that over the course of ministry, the ministry environment changed, your sense of call grew, developed, deepened, broadened, maybe narrowed in focus. I think that maybe part of this, I mean, I'm just going to make an observation here. Are people expecting when they go into ministry that there's this blueprint and this pattern and it's all going to go that way? Because that doesn't seem realistic. And so I'm wondering maybe if there's a resilience conversation to be had here as well. Oh, there definitely is. Uh, resilience, I think, in that principle is at the core of this. And really, you're asking a great question because, you know, what, what have we been called into and what was our understanding of what ministry was supposed to be? Right. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot Mm -hmm. of different models, a lot of different sources of that. Right. I remember, you know, as a 21 year old going to, you know, Bible college and going to seminary and studying to be a pastor. You're right. Like I had an idea and there was this ideal that was set before me of what ministry was supposed to be. And I, within the first month of full-time ministry, that was shattered, you know, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. uh, and honestly, uh, it's something in in Christian higher ed, we have to have to take a look at, you know, in seminaries, are we really preparing uh, young pastors for the realities of everyday ministry. And I would say, you know, uh, there's some great things happening in today's seminaries, but I really feel like um, in some ways we're not hitting the mark in, in seminary education to really prepare, uh, you know, young pastors for the full reality of what ministry is. And so you get in and you realize, wow, I wasn't trained for a lot of this stuff. I wasn't prepared for it. 
and uh, you, you meet a lot of pastors who become disillusioned. And, and really, so your question is great because it gets to the heart of what are we called to? Um, mm-hmm. What are we really called to do as pastors? Um, and so that right now, all of these cultural forces, all these changes are really causing us to get back to the core of our calling. But to your point, what if the core of our calling uh, from the very beginning was a bit misguided and, and disillusioned? Yeah, and I think that if the core of a pastor's calling, and I mean, we could debate what that is, but if if at least a huge part of it is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, then it may or may not look like what a person thinks that looks like. Um, because to equip the saints for the work of ministry today, um, to proclaim the gospel in the context of the cultural realities of the days in which we live, you know, it's not going to be with intact nuclear families for the most part. It's going to be with a lot of single people at various ages and stages of life. It's going to be with a lot of kids or young adults or adults now who grew up in what we would consider a broken home, which is now just the standard home in America. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. that part of it is we have convinced ourselves of what the ideal is in the kingdom, which is really good, right? But we don't live Mm -hmm. yet in the the fullness of the kingdom reality. We live in the brokenness, and we're the grace extenders in the midst of that. Yeah, we we live in a broken world and we are broken people, right? Amen. And so Amen. what what happens is is there's this ideal that's set up, like we set it up in our hearts and in our in ourselves as pastors, but it's also set up for us, right? And so mm-hmm. we step into that idea of what it means to be a great pastor. And um and I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, a lot of the churches I've served in are great churches, a lot, you know, you know, there's so many great churches around the country. Um but just there's a little bit of this Christian subculture that our pastors have to look a certain way, act a certain way. They have to have their lives put well, together. And, and so it's if really we tough. get the right pastor, they're going to fix our church. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly. just not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And then what happens is, is that ideal is really hard. And I would even say impossible to live up to. And so what happens mm-hmm. is a lot of leaders retreat within themselves. They can't, they you know, we have statistics say, you know, over half of Protestant pastors um, in the U.S. never meet with a counselor. Okay. Mm. And when you think about that, what are the, what, what are the reasons why? And, and I'm not going to kind of uh, make any leaps to, to make any conclusions there, but I will say for myself, I didn't always feel like I was able to, to say, I'm not okay. I need yeah. help. I need a counselor. Right. And then all the implications of that, you know, are, are pretty profound. And so uh, what I really think, you know, this statistic, you, you brought up the word resilience, right? This statistic, I really think doesn't reflect every, like, um, we, we kind of, we would think that it's all negative, right? I think actually there's some positive um, ways to look at this statistic. And one of them is this, I really think this is a time where pastors can really look deeply within themselves and ask themselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? And I think on the other side of that journey, if we lean into that journey and as congregants, as lay people, if you can come around your pastor and, and communicate that, hey, it's okay to, to, to not be okay, right? That I'm mm-hmm. not expecting perfection out of you as my pastor. Like you said, I'm not expecting you to come in and fix me and fix my church. Like I, I want you to just be real and vulnerable and I want you to lead us and shepherd us towards being real and vulnerable with Jesus and with others. And, and if we can communicate that to our pastors and, and elders, lay leaders, congregants, if we can, if we can actually support our pastors beyond just a nod, 
and really say, you know what, we're going to free up some budget for you to go to counseling. And we want you to actually really strongly consider going to counseling, right? Um, things like that. I think if we could openly encourage our pastors that it's okay not to be okay, and that we want you to seek holistic health in your life and for your family, I think we'll start to see pastors emerge from this more resilient, stronger in their faith, and more committed to their calling as a pastor. Yeah, so just some quick ideas for you if you're listening. Um, instead of asking your pastor to lead a retreat, why don't you offer to pay for your pastor to go on a retreat? Um, hmm. Or how about instead of asking your pastor to um, to do something in addition to what's already on the church calendar, why don't you suggest eliminating something from the church calendar and really encouraging them to take that evening or that day or that week or even that month um, as Sabbath rest? What? Uh, how might you be better served by a pastor who was rested and energized and healthy, whose marriage was healthy, who had a, a functioning, uh, vital relationship with their own children and their own family. Like, there's just all kinds of reasons to encourage the well-being of our pastors, not least, not least of which the health of, of the congregations of which we are a part. We're all in the body together, and so um, our pastors have a functional part of the body, and we want them to be healthy and um, and ready to serve and, and fully equipped for the good work that God has for them to do as well. So let's, we're all in this together. Joe, um, thank you so much for joining us today. You guys can find Joe Jensen at the Barna Group, Barna Research. They are online at barna.com. Joe, what a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Carmen. It was a pleasure. Likewise. We'll be right back. So this is the week during which um, December, the month of December, is going to begin because no, the month of November is nearly over. And on December the 1st, there is something on the Supreme Court docket that uh, pro-life people, people are, who are concerned about um, laws related to the protection of the pre-born, um, something that we're going to all want to be paying attention to. And that is the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization um, case. And so Mississippi has a 15-week abortion ban. It is headed to the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about why that is the pro-life case or the abortion-related case that the Supreme Court is hearing. We're also going to talk about the outcomes of the Rittenhouse and Arbery cases and what it means for the rule of law in the United States of America. So Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College is with us next. We'll be right back. Every family has a different story. No two kids are the same, and your journey through life will be uniquely wonderful and uniquely different. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Though every family I meet is special, I've picked up a few universal lessons that apply to moms and dads everywhere. Here's one. You can choose to be loving even when you don't feel loving. Parenting isn't easy, and there will be times when you want to shut down and give up. But in those moments, you can decide to act apart from your feelings. I've learned that feelings will soon follow if, first, you love as an act of your will. So let that universal statement ring in your mind. Be loving, even when you don't feel loving. Want to hear Mark in person? 
For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. Adam Carrington is back. Adam, are you a Boston Celtics fan? Uh, not, not in any deep sense, but uh, I, I did, I did like Larry Bird in the eighties. And so I, I do have a soft spot for them. All right. So I have a Jersey that I think we're going to all want, and it will be the Boston Celtics Jersey, which instead of saying Cantor on the back will now say freedom as Ennis Cantor, who immigrated here from Turkey and is known by his teammates as freedom officially changed his last name when he became a U.S. citizen, having passed the uh, citizenship test and being sworn in as an American citizen um, the end of the month. So I think it happens and today. That is, there you go. That's what yep, I have for you that is, as a lead-off that is a to our conversation. Story. Such yeah, a great no, story. That's a great story. I, I uh, the, the teacher that really um, taught me not just to love America, but why it was lo- so worth loving was a Hungarian immigrant who snuck across the border as a 10-year-old after the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. And he asked his father, uh, where, you know, where are we going to go after we escape? And his father said to America, and he, he asked, Father, why America? And his father said, uh, because we were born American, but in the wrong place. Mm. And uh, that that man uh, has always uh, struck me as a man who who worked very hard to be American in a way that was just handed to me. And I think uh, with 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 uh, with Ennis as well, that uh, sometimes, you know, immigrants, um, you know, uh, certain immigrants, especially really that they have to choose to be American and really love and embrace what it means to be American and can, can even teach some of us that have been born here um, how to, how to you know, appreciate uh, the country that we have and why it's appreciable. All right, let's talk about um, being born in America and let's talk about um, millions, tens of millions of people conceived in America but not born in America because other Americans subjected them to abortion. So let's pivot uh, to a conversation about the United States Supreme Court. Uh, The Supreme Court is going to hear a case this week that I think Christians should pay attention to. So please brief us in. Yes, it's the um, the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, and the big reason for this is not that Mississippi passed a 15-week abortion ban, they did, but that the court took the case and in taking the case basically uh, said, we are willing to reconsider Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the major abortion decisions, in a way that has not been uh, looked at in nearly 30 years. So I think that that makes it one of the the biggest case really in a generation. And the oral arguments are Wednesday. So just to tell everyone, the decision's not going to be out for months. But if you're ever going to listen to a Supreme Court case, and these are uh, streamed live from the Supreme Court site, uh, it's going to be Wednesday morning. I need to double check, I think at 10 o'clock. Uh, if you're ever going to listen to one, this this would be it. 
And uh, it, it really is going to decide the degree to which the pro-life movement is going to have more uh, maybe legal cap- capabilities to to really pursue um, the right to life, uh, protections and law for life. And the court has for the last generation or two really not made, not given the pro-life movement a lot of legal tools uh, to do so. And I think um, uh, the pro-life movement should be ready just in case they do give it to join uh, uh, what, what law should be with what the pro-life movement has been doing, which is uh, working in society and working with pregnancy health care centers and crisis pregnancy centers. And I think that that um, uh, this case would really be the opening to adding the legal side to that. So uh, it's hard to underestimate how big this case could be and, and, and how much hinges on the arguments that are going to be made Wednesday morning. Okay, Professor. So um, I'm going to maybe sit down Wednesday morning and listen to the Supreme Court oral arguments. But I need like a crib sheet to help me know what I'm listening for. I feel like I'm listening for arguments related to the word or the term viability. Um, Am I listening for that? Um, And what else might I be listening for? Yeah, yeah, viability was the line the court drew in Casey, uh, which affirmed Roe. And basically, the idea is before viability right now, the government uh, states can't really pass a whole lot of laws truly protecting life. Afterwards, they can. If, if the court is willing to move or eliminate that line, if they seem open to it when you're listening, that would be a big deal. <clears throat> the other is I, I think it's really going to hinge a lot on the discussion of precedent precedent Mm. being previous court decisions, I would be looking at judges like Kavanaugh, Roberts, maybe even Barrett, who have all been more deferential to precedent in other cases and see how how much they think precedent matters in this case, whether they're convinced by arguments the court, the the lawyers are going to be making that precedent uh, isn't good enough here that it deserves to be overturned, overturned, and and see where they're going with that because I, I really do think there's a majority on the court here that would not have decided Roe and Casey the way they were originally. That probably would have gone the other way, but will they think that the fact that these cases have been here for 30 and then 50 years make them not want to 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 go the other way? Uh, I know that may seem strange to people who, you know, are just focused on the question of abortion, on the question of the right to life, but <laughs> these are lifetime judges. And one thing they are concerned about is that the law is consistently applied across the country and across generations. Uh, how much will that push against the ultimate question of the justice for the unborn? That's the kind of questions that I think watching those judges in particular are going to be uh, a real deciding factor on where this might go. All right, we're going to take a very brief break, but I want to give uh, you, if you're listening, a couple of things to write down and consider in terms of your conversations um, with others about this case, which is going to uh, be argued before the Supreme Court. When we talk about viability, we need to be talking about life and the gift of life and what is life and who is sovereign over human life um, and who is in a position to give it and take it away. When we talk about precedent and deference to precedent, um, we need to be, you know, having conversations um, about 
the the word of God and um, the extent of God's sovereignty in our lives and the word of God and whether or not we conform to it or we conform this world to it. And I recognize that as Christians, we're having a different conversation than the Supreme Court is going to be having, but that's our job. Our job as Christians in the culture is to be sure that people are thinking beyond um, what is being heard uh, in terms of, hey, this this matches the legal limit of what's talked about in the country. And we need to be people who expand that conversation um, to to definitions and ideas that go beyond the current conversation of the day. So those are some of my challenges to us as we are listening as Christians to what's happening in the Supreme Court. All right, Dr. Adam Carrington and I are going to take a very brief break. Next up, we're going to talk about um, two verdicts in two cases uh, that have come forward, both in the Rittenhouse trial in Wisconsin and in the cases related to the murder of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. And we're going to talk about the rule of law. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we have had um, outcomes in two very important and very high-profile cases in the United States across the country um, recently. One is in the trial of a young man named Kyle Rittenhouse in Wisconsin um, following the shooting deaths of two individuals um, during rioting last summer. The other in the pursuit and killing of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, um, where the assailants have been found guilty. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse having been found not guilty. Adam Carrington, talk with us about the outcomes of these cases and maybe remind us or teach us what they say about the rule of law. Right. And I think the thing to remember is why we have the rule of law. Why do we rule through written out rules beforehand that set up what the standard of conduct should be, what you'll be punished for or not punished for, and just defining crimes? It's because uh, cer- certain actions can sometimes get caught up in the public, can get caught up in the media in a way that gets beyond what actually happened in the case and becomes a symbol for broader partisan uh, bickering. And when that happens, when you get away from what happened in the case itself, sometimes you can end up having gross miscarriages of justice. And I think both of these cases were in danger of that. Uh, in danger of fitting into a narrative one way or another beyond the facts. And I think that what you see in the charges and what you see in the evidence was that the guilty verdict came out of the uh, case that had a lot more evidence for guilt, and the innocent verdict came in the one that had a lot more evidence for uh, innocence or self-defense under the law. And I think that what that shows is that we have a trial process for a purpose. We have written laws for a purpose. And that, uh, you know, I'm not saying that everything Rittenhouse did was the best way to handle what was going on in Wisconsin at the time. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, even the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the murders, Arbery's murders, were defined by racism. We we're not entirely sure about that. There's, you know, some, some debate about that. But that all said, um, I think what you see here, regardless, is the idea that we rule by laws and we rule by trials applying the laws 
um, can can make it so that the public narrative isn't the only thing that drives a decision. And I think that in the end, that's better for justice. Will every decision come out right? No, but I think in the way that this played out, we 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 see the need for it, and and we see the need to 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 follow those procedures and the wisdom of them in those who set them up in our founding documents. So, um, one of the things that I heard, and I won't even call it coverage because this was just blatant commentary after the fact, and that that's part of I think the challenge of what we get as consumers of the news is that oftentimes what we're listening to is not news. It is political commentary from a viewpoint. And so I heard um, coverage of the outcome of one of these trials, and I um, I heard the commentator say, um, well, this was actually never a pursuit of the truth. This was just about whether or not the prosecutor or the defense attorney could tell a more compelling story. And, you know, and in this case, one side, quote, told a more compelling story than the other side. That that is not what we're doing in our court system, is it? <laughs> no. And I think that comes to a broader problem that uh, while perspective matters in getting at the truth, ultimately there is truth. And I think especially this this as we as we enter the Advent season, remembering that we follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life should push us from saying that there's a difference between a compelling story and justice and truth. The truly compelling story, the truly uh, uh, the story that matters is the true one. And the true one, whether it be whether a murder occurred or the true one, whether being the Son of God incarnated uh, to to die and rise again for our sins, I think it's all part of a bigger picture of um, what it means to live under God's sovereignty and what it means to recognize that in, in a world that wants to um, ever since the Garden of Eden, say, did God really say, and therefore create our own uh, sinful, uh, disparate truths? Uh, it is it is uh, itself a distortion of the world and one that we should not only condemn but celebrate its opposite. All right. Before I let you go, I want to um, I want to read a couple of sentences at the lead of another article in relationship to another case. Um, because there are times that people are wrongfully convicted in the United States of America, and sometimes they spend a very long time in prison. Kevin Strickland is a Missouri man, and he was exonerated last Tuesday after spending 43 years in prison, having been wrongfully convicted. Uh, He is now 62 years old. He was sentenced to life in prison, convicted in 1979 of charges relating to a triple homicide in Kansas City, Missouri, um, uh, of which he was no part. And so I do think that it is important for us as people of truth to to recognize that there are things about our system that don't work justly for everyone, and we have to pay attention to that as well. Yes. No, I, I, I agree. We, we have a deeply imperfect uh, world, partly because we're deeply imperfect human beings. And I think that what we have to do is, is that's why we have a system that tries to put the, the 
uh, onus on the prosecution that gives deference to the defendant, but that still doesn't always work. And I think what we have to do in those cases is um, make it as right as we can. And, and, and that's going to be impossible to do adequately uh, in this life. And I think that, again, that's why we have to hold on to hope as Christians that in, in, in the age to come, the afflictions that, that his people suffer here will be momentary compared to the weight of glory that comes. At the same time, we shouldn't shrug this off. Uh, and, and uh, you know, what can you do for 43 years? Uh, only so much. But I think that we do owe it to Strickland and others uh, to try to get it right in the future, but also to do whatever we can uh, to apologize and, and, and recompense to the degree possible in this life. Yeah. Amen. All right, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can find him on Twitter. He tweets at Carrington AM. Um, Adam, blessings. We're praying for you, praying for your family. Uh, may you have a healthy and beautiful Christmas if we don't talk to you before then. Uh, wishing the same to you all as well. Thank you. Blessings. You are in our prayers. We'll be right back. All right, when, uh, when I say the word Luke, do you hear like that Star Wars thing? Like I kind of hear that every time I invite people to join us in reading through the Bible, we're going to read the Gospel of Luke. Can you do it, Paul, a little better than me? You know what I'm talking about. You know the Darth Vader Luke? I'm no? sorry, I was uh, talking with Adam. Luke. Repeat that? Yeah, when, you know, Luke, when Luke. Darth Vader says that, yeah. Yes. Well, he actually didn't go, Luke, I am your no. I just, I am your father. Didn't say, oh. yeah, anyway. <laughs> Luke. Luke. Okay, join us. You should you should join us. We are reading through the Gospel of Luke during um, the first 24 days of December. Because there's 24 chapters, so we thought that'd be fun. So you have a couple of days left to sign up, but why would you wait? Why wouldn't you go to MyFaithRadio.com right now and sign up to join us? There's a daily podcast. There's a downloadable study guide. We're going to send you a groovy bookmark so you can check off the days. Yeah, why wouldn't you join us in that? I mean, you're going to get to... Uh, Join with us in reading through the Gospel of Yes, Luke. don't underestimate the power of Scripture or something like that. There you go. Exactly. Where in the Word are you today? We're glad you're right here with us on Mornings with Carmen. We have another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.